the Goldberg Variations. The very name seems to hold out the promise of glittering musical mountaintops. Before you've even heard it, you feel this must be something wonderful. And yes, I know Goldberg was just the name of the person who was originally supposed to have played the piece. And anyway, this wasn't what Bach himself called it. And the old story of Count Kaiserlink, the Russian ambassador to Saxony, who commissioned these variations to soothe his troubled sleepless nights, with keyboard music of a soft and somewhat lively character, as Bach's first biographer put it. Well, it's not a story that's ever been proved, and there's a slight problem about it. Apparently, Johann Goldberg, who was the Count's private harpsichordist who was supposed to have given these nighttime performances, was a boy of only 14 at the time, and this is a piece which demands the utmost virtuosity. Still, who knows, maybe Goldberg was a child prodigy, maybe he did play this music in the middle of the night. He was certainly a young performer Bach thought worth taking on as a private pupil. And it's a pretty name for one of the masterpieces of the 18th century. Bach himself was well aware that this was an extremely important piece in his output. More than that, it's obvious from the music itself that he wrote it, as he did his musical offering and his art of fugue, as a glorious demonstration of the vast range of his powers as a composer, of his technical powers, his wizardry, invention and ingenuity on the one hand, and on the other hand, of his affective powers, of the endless variety of human experience that he could touch on in his music, that he could make us feel passing within a few bars from laughter to tears, from the simple to the elaborate, from the public to the private, from the sublime to the delightfully silly. issued the Goldberg Variations in the early 1740s as part four of his Klavierübung, Keyboard Practice. This was the rather daunting title of his most important exercise in publishing his own music. That's not something composers did very often in the 18th century. It was cheaper and quicker to write music out by hand. So the fact that he went to so much trouble to engrave and print this music as beautifully as possible, making it into a book that could only be afforded by those with a lot of money, that too, like the music itself, shows you how proud he was of this piece and how much he wanted his reputation to be measured by it. We speak in English of the Goldberg Variations, but changes would be a fairer way of translating the German word Bach actually uses in his title. The Goldberg Changes. It's a bit like the English expression, ringing the changes. And the changes in the Goldberg are rung not on the tune of the opening aria, but on its bass, the deep line going on underneath the tune, and, of course, on the various possible harmonies that spring from that bass. In 
a way, what you have in the Goldberg is not one of those fancy 19th century decorative variation cycles where the composer goes on adding more and more twiddles to make the tune sound flowerier and flowerier, but something more akin to what happens in jazz, where a fixed set of chords, like a 12-bar blues, goes round and round and the musicians weave different lines and rhythms through those chords. Instead of just a 12-bar blues, Bach makes his bass and chord pattern much longer, 32 bars, not counting the repeat of each half that he writes in every time, which, if you play it, gives you 64 bars. That's a very long blues to remember. And he doesn't always follow the pattern through regularly. It's always there, but especially towards the end of the cycle, by which time we've heard it many times in different shapes and sizes, he stretches it and squeezes it, once or twice even twisting it into a kind of spiral where it keeps going back on itself. In fact, Bach constantly varies his presentation of the structure of the bass in such a way so that even in the opening aria we never quite hear it in its naked form. He plays with it from the very beginning. But if you were to do something he doesn't do, you might strip the bass right down to something like this. Four phrases of eight notes, like a simple hymn or an old-fashioned song. The first eight notes of that bass are actually a version of an idea that comes all over the place in 17th and 18th century music. Scholars have found it in Handel, Purcell, and even in the music of earlier composers. But the point, surely, is not that Bach was referring to some particular other piece, but that he was starting from a generally conventional idea that would have sounded utterly normal and obvious to any music lover of his time. Almost a cliché, if you like. And if you were to take that cliché and build the simplest possible chords on top of it, then judging by the least complicated variations in the Goldberg set, you might harmonise that bass line something like this. Let's take a look at some of the daring ways Bach rings the changes. The bass begins with a little scale going downwards. By the first variation, that's turned already into this. A few moments later, the scale has simplified itself again. In the next variation after that, Bach adds so many notes to the bass that you're hard put to tell the difference between the most important ones, the four notes stepping downwards, and all the other curly cues and running around which seem to be going in the opposite direction. Sometimes, like there, Bach almost seems to be having a game with us, daring us to guess at what he's hidden in the torrent of notes. 
At other times, he plays with us in the opposite way, hammering out the basic notes and the structure of the harmony, almost like one of those sonorous, striding orchestral basses in the Brandenburg concertos. Much later on in the Goldberg, he moves for a while into the minor. The same phrase and pattern can suddenly turn into something quite different, sinewy, slithering, and chromatic. Then later, back in the major, Bach keeps plotting other moves. In the twenty-second variation, for example, he produces almost the simplest version of the bass we ever hear, even simpler than in the opening aria. And over the top of that, he writes a little fugue in three voices, and the subject of that fugue, the scrap of melody with which each successive voice begins, is the same descending scale with which the bass itself begins. First, we hear the tenor voice. Then the alto, and finally the top voice, the treble. So that when you hear all four voices at once, the effect is very far from simple. It's as though we'd entered a hall of mirrors, and images of the bass were being reflected and echoed all over the place in all the other voices. describes the Goldbergs as thirty diverse variations. He rings thirty different changes on that bass, but that's not all, for he arranges these thirty variations into an order so precise, so outrageously careful, cunning, and fascinating, that it constitutes one of the great structures in our musical literature. It's not a dramatic structure like an opera or a symphony, but something more like a spatial or architectural structure, a sort of pavilion in sound. And many of the scholars and specialists who've devoted years to discovering the elaborate hidden principles and networks that appear to be holding that pavilion together, but that gives a wrong impression too, because the most important rules and principles that produce the structure of the Goldberg variations are no more complicated than those that govern a simple children's game. Thirty variations divides into ten sets of three. Like ten little suites, each made up of three movements, 
and the first two movements of each suite are a pair of contrasted pieces, dances or songs, or quite often a little piece of virtuoso display. While, except for the very last variation, the last movement in each suite, every third movement of the Goldberg variations, in other words, is a canon, rather like Frère Jacques, or rather not like Frère Jacques, as we'll see. I'll come back to those canons later on in the programme. For the moment, I want to concentrate on the rich variety of all those other variations, the ones that make up the first two of each set of three. Remember Bach's title, Diverse Variations, or perhaps Different Changes. It's the variety and contrast between one variation and the next that is the first miracle and pleasure of this piece. Bach makes variety in several ways. In the first place, he constantly changes the number of voices he uses. There are 12 variations that only use two voices, one voice in each hand. Most of these were written for a harpsichord with two manuals or two keyboards, and this means that although in one way they're simpler, they only have two voices going along at the same time, in another way they're sometimes very complicated indeed because the two voices are crossing one another and very often at high speeds. many of the two-part variations are quick and lively and surprisingly elaborate like that one. It's as though the challenge of writing in only two parts provoked Bach to stretch that idea of two voices as far as it could go. Towards the end of the Goldberg, he even adds to the complexity of his two-part writing by expanding the single voice in each hand to make chords, so you hear all sorts of new, suddenly thicker textures without the music ever ceasing to be in two parts. If 12 of the Goldberg variations are in two voices, 14 of them are in three voices. These three voice numbers include some of the strictest music in the piece, like the canons in every third variation that I'll be talking about later. But on the other hand, many of the sweetest and most relaxed and laid-back numbers in the piece are also in three parts. In most of these cases, the three voices in question are not exactly equal with one another. They nearly always consist of a bass, a variation or change of the same bass running all the way through the work. And on top of it, two rather different voices which echo one another and weave around one another. This produces the texture that Bach's contemporaries would have recognised as the sound of a trio or a trio sonata. 
you could easily imagine the upper two voices, for example, here in the second variation, being played on a couple of oboes or a flute and violin, while the bass trips along underneath on a cello and harpsichord. So there are 12 two-part numbers, 14 three-part numbers, and that leaves only four numbers in four parts. One of these is a light-hearted dance number, and one is the final variation, which we'll get to at the end of the programme. And the other two are both little fugues. We heard the opening of one of those fugues earlier, the 22nd variation, where each of the three upper voices in turn imitates the bass underneath. But the bass there is not part of the fugue itself, so what you get is a three-part fugue on top of an independent bass. Variation 10, Bach actually calls a fugetta, or a little fugue. It really is a four-voice fugue, where the bass is part of the fugue too, while still remaining that same bass which runs all the way through the Goldbergs. It's an extraordinary achievement, the only moment in the whole work where the music turns into four equal voices. But there's something else too. Remember that the bass, the blues pattern if you like, is 32 bars long. It falls into two halves each of 16 bars, and in this fugue each voice enters after exactly four bars. So in the first half you hear first the bass, then after four bars the tenor, then after another four bars the treble at the top, and then finally, for just the last four bars, the alto comes in. And in the second half of the variation, although the bass line continues joining the two halves together, you'll hear the theme, the fugue subject, first in the top line, then after four bars in the alto, then in the bass, and finally in the tenor. In other words, in the second half, the order of the voices is turned upside down. Just for good measure, we've asked our pianist Tim Horton to play this variation complete with repeats as well, so you can hear each half twice, and instead of 32 bars you get 64, and you hear fours within fours within fours, and all in four voices. Thank you. 
But changing the number of voices is not the only way Bach makes his variations constantly contrasting. His aria with diverse variations or different changes. He also finds diversity in different genres, in the way he can refer to different styles and kinds of music. We've already heard him suggesting duo and trio sonatas and even fugues, but for an audience of Bach's day, the most instantly recognizable types of music were dances of one kind or another. The Goldberg is full of 18th century dances. Here, for example, is the second half of the fourth variation, which also happens to be the first of the four four-voice variations I was talking about a moment ago. In this number, the triple rhythm and the lively character would once upon a time have unmistakably suggested the very popular passe-pied. The passe-pied was supposedly a French sailor's dance, and the old dancing masters used to tell their pupils not to dance it, but to run it with elegance. A few variations later, that same second half of Bach's blues pattern is transformed into another very popular triplet rhythm dance of the period, the jig or jig. This time in just two voices. The jig was originally an Italian dance with a characteristic skip in the middle of the beat, and in earlier days the tune would have been played on a violin or a folk fiddle, which you can sort of hear in the way Bach writes it. A few numbers further on in the eleventh variation, Bach speeds up this second half pattern of harmonies so that the same jig-like rhythm becomes a kind of race, almost a toccata. Listen especially to the way the two voices run in and out of one another at the end. Passe-pied and jigs were both quick dances, but dances of one kind or another are to be found everywhere in Bach's work, not just here, but in his suites and partitas, as well as less obviously all over the place in his preludes and fugues, and even in his cantatas and in the Passions. Dance rhythms in the 18th century were a constant and richly varied source of musical life and invention. They represented a form of shared experience which belonged equally to the composer, the players and the audience. But playing with familiar dances is not the only way that Bach creates variety in his variations. We must always remember that as a performer he was one of the greatest keyboard virtuosi of his age. Indeed, to many people then in Germany, he was more famous as an organist than as a composer. 
and according to his son, he was a wonderful violinist and viola player, and he was also a singer. And part of the point of the Goldberg variations, of the detail in which they're worked out, and of the way Bach published them in such lavish style, was to demonstrate the very limits of virtuosic solo performance on the harpsichord of the day. If the 14-year-old Johann Goldberg really did play this music to the count, he must have been a very fine player indeed. Take the first half of the 20th variation, for example. amazing second half of the 28th variation, one of a series of ever more elaborate keyboard conjuring tricks that Bach pulls out of the hat towards the end of the piece. As many people have observed, Bach here plays with a trick of the fingers that was not to become important again until late Beethoven or even the early Romantics. Perhaps the most remarkable reference to another type of music or a different musical form occurs exactly halfway through the cycle at the 16th variation. Over this particular number, Bach wrote the word overture in the score. A bit late for an overture, you might think. Of course, it's not really an opening to anything, as we all know. It's just the 16th variation. And so Bach makes it an overture in miniature. He doesn't want to upset the balance of the whole cycle. Overtures, or French overtures as people used to call them, were in Bach's day the kind of thing you might find at the beginning of a big theatrical piece or an oratorio. The standard form was a grand, solemn opening, like a courtly march to be played at the entrance of a monarch, with plenty of sweeping strings, a slow dotted rhythm to suggest the tramping of feet, flourishes of trumpets, horns and drums, and a general feeling of dramatic suspense. This would then be answered by vigorous, fast music, as though the marching soldiers and courtiers were suddenly prancing around in general merrymaking. And very often, this fast music would take the form of a fugue, so the whole thing could be thought of as a kind of prelude and fugue spliced together. The cleverness of this particular miniature overture is that Bach still manages to make it stick to the basic shape of his original 32-bar blues. He uses the first 16 bars as the basis of the march-like, fanfare-like introductory music. And with the exception of a few chords like the juicy one at the beginning, he keeps all the way through this section to two voices with the occasional suggestion of a third one. But this overture then becomes a real three-voice piece in the second half when Bach turns the music into a lively three-part fugue in triple time, which even occasionally suggests the presence of four voices. It's perhaps as though in this movement, in this new beginning halfway through the Goldberg, Bach were trying to sum up everything he's achieved so far and launch the second half at the same time. 
We've asked our pianist to play this movement as Bach wrote it, complete with repeats. So you get the first half of the overture, the courtly prelude, twice, and then you get the fugue, twice. After all this characteristic music, these dances, fugues, trio sonatas and that little French overture, it's now time to look at what is probably the most famous aspect of the Goldberg variations, the great cycle of canons that divide the structure up into ten groups of three. So there's a canon on the third variation, the sixth, the ninth, the twelfth and so on. Each one of the canons is in two voices, and all but one take place over an independent bass in the left hand, so that makes three voices in all. And Bach has also made this cycle of canons a study of different kinds of canon. 
In the first one, the first and second voices enter on the same note at the unison, just like Frere Jacques. But in each successive canon afterwards, Bach brings the two voices in with ever wider and wider intervals between them. So in the first canon, in the third variation, the first voice enters like this. And the second voice like this, starting on the same note exactly. And both voices float in the right hand above a version in the left hand of the same bass that runs all the way through the Goldberg variations from beginning to end. The second canon, in the sixth variation, is already more complicated. Here the second voice enters very clearly a bar later than the first one, but a note higher. Listen to those two voices without the bass. And that has to take place while the left hand is playing this. In the fourth canon, as you'd expect, the distance between the two voices has become a fourth. So the first voice enters here. And the second voice enters here, a fourth lower than the first. But this time, Bach plays another trick and makes the second voice come in as an upside-down version of the first. This time, let's hear how this canon sounds together with the bass, not at the beginning, but in the second half of the variation. Here, the lower voice of the canon starts, and a bar later, it's answered by the upper voice, the other way round, upside down. Canon in the 15th variation pulls off yet another trick. Once again, the two voices of the canon are upside down to one another, and naturally the second voice begins a fifth higher than the first. But this time Bach has put the whole piece into the minor, which makes the harmony very lush and complicated. Here's the first voice. Then the second, a fifth higher. And here's that minor version of the bass that we heard at the beginning of the program. And put together those three voices and you produce this astonishingly rich texture.
The seventh canon is another rich-sounding variation in the minor key. The bass is especially chromatic. The two canonic voices enter with first the middle voice, then with the upper voice, a seventh higher, to produce a lavish network of harmonic slides and suspensions. In the eighth canon, the two voices at last arrive back at the simplicity and purity of being an octave apart. Listen to how they sound together, but without the bass, in the second half of the variation. Each voice enters with a trilling ornament, so you can hear it really clearly. So what of the last variation, the thirtieth? By rights, that should be a tenth canon at the interval of the tenth. But instead of that, Bach ends the whole cycle with something completely different, a musical joke. When Bach was a boy, his many relations in the large and extremely musical Bach family used to organize annual get-togethers in one town or another where they would meet up with all their cousins and spend several days together sharing meals and family stories and making music of one kind or another. In later years, Bach told his sons about these meetings, which by that stage no longer happened. And he said that the family would make much serious music together. They would sing their own religious works and so on. But they would nearly always end by improvising joke pieces on popular tunes, even ones with rather dodgy words. And that's exactly what Bach does here at the end of the Goldberg Variations. Instead of writing a complicated canon, he replaces it with a quad libet, meaning whatever takes your fancy. He chooses some sadly now forgotten but evidently once quite well-known tunes and weaves them together in an elaborate texture of four voices over exactly the same serious bass that he's used all the way through the rest of the cycle. Apparently there are some tunes in this movement which no one knows the words of, but the words of two of the tunes have been remembered. The first of these appears to be about a certain familiar digestive problem. Cabbage and turnips have driven me away. If my mother had cooked meat, I would have stayed longer. The other tune is evidently of a more amorous kind. It's been so long since I've been at your house. Come here, come here, come here.
It's not really possible for us nowadays to find these tunes funny in the way that Bach and his friends would have found them funny, but the result is still delightful. I began this program by noting the extraordinary range of human experiences Bach touches in the Goldberg Variations. Everything from the most serious to the silliest, from the noblest to the most vulgar, from the quickest and most lively music to the slowest and most somber, from the most complicated ideas to the most simple. And all this happens over that endlessly repeating 32 bars of bass, swinging round and round under every variation. 32 bars. And if you play the whole cycle without repeats, but with the aria as Bach instructs at the beginning and the end, by the time the performance finishes, you'll have heard that bass 32 times. And if you played all the repeats, as Bach asks, but which is something not many performers do, you'll end up hearing each half of the bass 64 times. That's a lot of times to keep repeating the same musical idea over and over again. And no one apart from Bach has ever brought off such an astonishing feat, except Beethoven, following the example of the Goldbergs in his Diabelli variations. In one way, you might compare the Goldberg variations to a journey that appears to move endlessly onwards, for every number seems to take us further into a different world, or even into an interlinked network of contrasted worlds. But at the same time, you might also compare the experience of this astonishing masterpiece to that of a man who remains all the time in one and the same place, rooted to the spot. And the longer he remains there, the more deeply he understands where it is that he is. Which is why, I suppose, Bach must end where he started, with the haunting song of the Saraband, that aria with which he began this vast cycle of variations composed, as he himself wrote on the title page, for music lovers to refresh their spirits.